Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner and today my guest is Dr. Joe Krista and we're going to be talking about how mold-related illness needs a definition of grade. Dr. Joe Krista is a pioneering naturopathic doctor, best-selling author, devoted educator, and creative innovator. Her superpower is to make complex medical concepts simple and digestible for the average person. Dr. Joe's passion is to elevate the well-being of the planet via the well-being of her inhabitants. Her books, memberships, and online courses support those wanting concrete steps to conquer health challenges. Dr. Joe focuses on conditions that cause injury to the brain and nervous system, including mold, pans and pandas, Lyme disease, and concussion. I hope you enjoy my conversation today with Dr. Joe Krista. Welcome, Dr. Krista. It's really an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so great. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So thank you. (laughs) I know I always get inspired of who I'm going to invite in the podcast. And I know your work has been so influential in our community. And I felt like I've known you for a long time, just seeing your work and listening to your lectures. And, you know, it just came in like a light bulb reach to Dr. Joe. And, you know, so I'm I'm so glad that, um, you know, this is a time and that we get to share really amazing information today on the podcast. So thank you for being part of this. And, you know, as we were chatting before getting on, you know, I I just want to even start our conversation, right? So when we start talking about mold, often there's this heaviness, there's this, you know, frustration, there's this trauma, there's this, um, you know, fear, you know, that is really part of the conversation because patients have been through so much, right? They've been through the trauma of not knowing probably most of them why they got so sick. And then they figure out it's related to their environment. That's a really, you know, dear to them, usually their home or their work and that they have to make a major change, you know, around that. And so it can just be a lot. And so I loved that you, you shared that we really want to change the energy of the conversation around empowerment and lightness and that it's solvable. And so I just wanted to just start just right there because as people are tuning into another, you know, podcast around mold, I want to want them to hear that it's going to be a different conversation. Do you want to just comment on that before we, we dive in? Yeah, absolutely. When I, when I got into the mold world, it started from the Lyme world, which is a lot of the same (laughs) energy. Uh, This is going to take a long time and it's going to be hard and you're going to herx and feel miserable to get better. And as I was realizing a lot of these people had mold, I realized that that was almost, that message was the same message with almost on steroids when it came to mold, you know, that it was so much heavier. It was so much darker. This is going to be hard. You're going to feel worse because I think, like you said, their sanctuary is going to get messed with either their job or their church or their home or somewhere that's very dear to them. And they have to do that at the same time as not feeling good and not having a brain that works very well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that messaging out there was my first observation was the messaging and the energy behind it. And I thought, is this mold (laughs) <laughs> doing this, <laughs> you know, it's a pretty smart thing. And so it was very important to me when I created my book that I didn't re-traumatize with it. You'll notice there are no pictures of mold in there mm-hmm. and that's done purposefully. The front of my book is all about solutions. It's all about the things that are going to bring vibrancy, resiliency, and health back. Also a little bit of humor because, mm-hmm. you know, when you feel down, it's okay to laugh. We have this thing that Oh, if I, you know, if I found something humorous when I'm going through a hard time, well, maybe I'm not taking it seriously or something like that. And that's absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. So I tried to take the words work and hard completely out of the conversation. Do you put effort into it? Yes. Does it take a long time in some cases? 
yeah, it can take a long time, but that doesn't mean that the energy has to be something you carry like a piano on your back. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's such a differentiator because I think, you know, in this community, as I said, we can easily retreat to the other energy we just talked about given, you know, just, yeah, the field of energy that is current in this, you know, paradigm. So thank you for bringing lightness and humor to this (laughs) topic, you know, and, um, and we have the title that really that you feel that mold related illness needs a definition upgrade. What, What do you mean by that? Absolutely. If you look at the CDC's definition of mold, anything, mold illness, it's the two poles that of possibility. And it's basically spore-related illness, which is going to be sinusitis, hypersensitive lungs, asthma, maybe post-nasal drip, all allergy kind of things and all things that have to do with interaction with the spores. But then they go all the way over to the, the end extreme of aspergillosis of the lungs, which is infection of the lungs, not even colonization, but infection. So we would see this as somebody maybe who's going through cancer therapy or maybe someone who has HIV. There's a whole lot more to mold-related illness than that. Mold can make you sick with the spores for sure, which is not only just allergy. You can get colonized by spores in your respiratory tract, in your gut, in your bladder, in your vaginal vault. You know, I mean, it's going to find lots of plate skin, but also there's spore fragments. Mold also makes chemicals as part of its living, just metabolizing. I call it mold farts just because you know, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> we all understand that. It eats, metabolizes. And gases. And then there are mycotoxins. And mycotoxins for my patient population account for about 75 to 80% of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So that's a massive amount of mold-related illness that we are not accepting in medicine. And it makes sense kind of how this has happened. You can't, in medicine with medical ethics, you can't purposefully expose someone to a mycotoxin that we know is carcinogenic that we know causes birth defects, that we know causes all kinds of problems, only to then test and see what makes them better. Mm-hmm. So there isn't human, there aren't human clinical trials. Mm-hmm. There are animal studies. And so then as naturopathic doctors, of course, animal studies, what are they using? Nutrients, herbs, you know, so especially herbs that have antimicrobial properties. So we have a comfort with that. So doing that translational research is easy for us. We can take that animal data and translate it to, well, what would that be in a human dose that I have experience and comfort with? Mm-hmm. And that's basically where we can move into the, the treatment side. Mm-hmm. But the, the definition of what equates a mold-related illness misses mycotoxins primarily and the chemical off-gassing because we can't purposefully do that to someone just to see how to get them better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you shared so much great insight there. And I want to land on how you said about 75%, you know, of symptoms um, in your patient population, your experience is related to mycotoxins. So that alone is a huge area of focus and that we need to, of course, educate more. So most of my patients and my audience know about mycotoxins, but maybe just a high level overview of this is still a new term and kind of what are we talking about? What are we looking at? How do we measure them? Perfect. So, So mycotoxins are, they're really energetically costly to a mold spore. So it doesn't make them all the time. We see that they make them a lot in a water damaged building because that's a competitive environment that they really, really want. So when a mold spore is outside, it has all these other forces of nature that keep it kind of in check. So they don't make a lot of mycotoxins outdoors. You see sunshine, air movement, 
other microbes, other fungi like mushrooms. So the mold kind of knows where it is, where what its role is on the planet. It's supposed to decompose and make, you know, previously living organic material into tiny little nutrients so it can share with the rest of the forest and feed. But when it gets into an indoor environment, it doesn't have all those nature controls. It has almost the exact opposite. <laughs> it doesn't have sunshine, usually not enough air movement, and we present it with a humid environment and previously living organic material. So it comes in here and it says, whoa, this is a sweet spot. This is like beachfront property for me. I want the whole thing to myself because I have nothing controlling me. There's no other fungi or anything like that. So I'm going to start acting greedy. And that's when it will start to spit out mycotoxins because if another bacteria or fungus or microbe comes into that environment that thinks the same thing, I want this beachfront property. It'll start to make these mycotoxins to defend itself. So we're not the target, but we get affected by it just like the other microbes would. Mm. So that's when we think about mycotoxins, if you think about the intention in a toxin, the intention is to harm another living thing. That's huge. You know, like when you really let that set in, like the, the other thing you can get in a water damage building is exposure to actinomycetes, which op, like basically breaks apart into endotoxin. That's sort of like an accident, <laughs> you know, that's just part of the, its metabolism. Whereas a mycotoxin is made with the intention of harm. Mm -hmm. So that's where I put a lot of my focus on treatment because of understanding the intention and probably the ability to harm a body is mm -hmm. a little greater than mm -hmm. those other things that you can get. So mycotoxins are fat soluble or oil soluble, which means, you know, in, in, before I went to medical school, I would hear something like fat soluble and be thinking like booty fat or <laughs> fat tire or something like that. You know? <laughs> but once you go to medical school, you realize, wow, fat soluble means brain, bone mm. marrow, nervous system, gut lining, holy cow, lining of every cell. Now we start to really understand where all of these mycotoxins can go in the body. And then how we have to get it out is to basically create an oil change in the body to get those fats out. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gives you an idea. If I just listed those areas, we see brain fog. We can see some of them actually can get into the brain. They're nerve toxic. They're toxic to the gut. They're toxic to the skin. They're toxic to our organs of detoxification. They're toxic to the eyes and the nerves and how we process. So a lot of people who've been exposed to mold have visual processing problems mm -hmm. and it changes all the time. So that's kind of a keynote for me is like, if you notice your eyes are going bad and you go get new contacts or glasses and three weeks later, like, I don't know what my eye doctor is doing. These things don't work. Mm -hmm. Not your eye doctor being a bad eye doctor. It's mold changing your vision and your ability to process. Mm -hmm. So if we think about all those places, mycotoxins are also gene toxic. And that's where we get worried about it because it tries to rewire you to be more wimpy. So mold can move in and stay in that territory. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's like high, high level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was excellent. And, and I um, had never heard, you know, it described in that way. And that really, you know, it's like mold gone wild, right? In the water. Yeah. Mold, you know, so I, I know that really, you know, hits home because people have that conversation, right? Where we evolve with mold and what's the mold outside and versus inside. And that that's a really, you know, you did a really great job of painting that picture. And, and as you mentioned, you know, mycotoxins have an affinity for all these tissues that, you know, any patient that walks in our door, you know, has all of those symptoms, right? And so I can see why this is 
is a big, you know, area of focus. Maybe if you want to highlight, like what are the most common mycotoxins that you're seeing in your patients and um, maybe a few testing um, options that you um, you think are really helpful to guide people out there who are listening um, to request these tests if they think that this might be a problem. Yeah, in a perfect world, we would do both a urine mycotoxin test and a serum mycotoxin antibody test. That's different than a mold allergy test. Mm -hmm. This is a mycotoxin allergy test in essence. Mm -hmm. So in a perfect world, we do both because the urine mycotoxins tell us, depending on what what your doctor's trying to know, like if we provoke you, we're trying to understand body burden. If we don't provoke you, we're trying to understand what's your daily dump. Mm-hmm. Um, or daily burden, if you want to think of it that way, with the, the blood test, we're trying to say, okay, you might have ochre toxin, but what does your body think about it? Because some people can live more harmoniously with a low level of mycotoxins through their food or that kind of thing and not be taken down. It actually is a little bit of a hormesis that promotes detoxification. Mm-hmm. So a little bit, they don't have to be freaked out about That's why we have like a quote normal level of some of these mycotoxins because we have been kind of eating mycotoxins in a small amount through our whole evolution. Mm -hmm. But the most common one that I see is ochratoxin, and that's because it's a persister. Ochratoxin binds to a protein in the blood called albumin. So the kidney can't detoxify it. It holds onto it. And that's how the kidney becomes damaged by ochratoxin. Kidneys are ochratoxin really hard on the kidneys. Mm -hmm. But we see it really commonly because it doesn't fall off of that protein as easily. So it's going to stick around a lot longer, even if you are out of that water damage building exposure. Mm -hmm. We also see aflatoxin a lot. Lately, there's been a lot of citronin, but I don't know if that's due to lab variant happening Mm -hmm. or which is my, I suspect that. I see a lot of gliotoxin. That's really normal to bump up right after you've started treating. It's almost like it's been hiding behind and that one can, you can get from candida also. So I kind of see that if a person has been colonized and we start to treat them, candida takes advantage of the extra real estate for a little while. Mm-hmm. And if you're not doing aggressive enough antifungals through that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say that those are right now kind of the most common. And then MPA, if you have a lab who's testing that. Mm-hmm. And MPA is an interesting one. It's not a mycotoxin. It's one of the off gases of living mold. So if there's mold in the environment and it's living, there's for sure MPA, but not necessarily mycotoxins. Mm-hmm. So if when we see the MPA, that's another one that'll spike really early in the treatment because mm-hmm. it does come out through a different pathway in the liver that once we, you know, doing the things that we do, once we get those pathways moving again, it's like the body goes, Whoa, you know, let, here, let's get rid of this. So we see a big spike in MPA early. And yeah. that's a great point how, um, you know, interpreting the test and where you are with treatment, you know, seeing it come out is a good thing. So sometimes, that's a good thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes that can be alarming for people, but you're like, your body's getting rid of it. Would you say, you know, I'm just curious if we see high MPA having, I mean, obviously we do a lot to rule out current exposure, but if we're doing a screening test, do, would you say that they're more likely to have a current exposure or is that maybe not if, if you're just starting with this test before treatment? Yeah. If you're just starting with the test before treatment, then I think of it as a current exposure. And that's why in perfect world, we run both serum mycotoxin antibody, because that is the only one, the IgE serum antibody, the only one that answers the question, is this a current exposure or not? Mm -hmm. At least current exposure to the degree that their immune system is upset about it. Mm 
Mm. Which is means it's, you know, changing your immune system, which we don't want. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a really great pearl. I'm so glad you um, talked about the serum um, antibody testing. I don't do that on routine in my patients, and I I, I will after after this. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's like that in you know the the Lyme world at this point because I'm I'm pretty jaded. I'm like we've all been exposed to all of these you know microbes, you know, but you know who's going to be who's symptomatic and what is the immune system doing in relationship to the presence of the that microbe, and that that's where we you know see the antibody you know responses and um, you know. With the immune activity is so do you, what lab do you use for that do you do the mic my, yeah. my myco lab that's mm-hmm. right. yeah yeah, so. yeah. Mm-hmm. this science was developed by cyrex but it's yeah. being carried out by a different company yeah um not that you have to pick favorites but if someone was trying to say okay what what mycotoxin test should i have my patient or my um, doctor order do you um do you have any opinion on that I get this question all the time, <laughs> as you can imagine. And I do split sample testing quite a bit where we take the urine sample and we split it between them. And we also do a blood draw on the same day with the MyMyco, just so I am, can understand as a teacher, you know, what, how are things, it gets a little expensive, but that's what my course pays for. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, yeah. So I feel like the real question should be, which one is right for my patient at this time? Because they each have their own limitations, strengths, and weaknesses, any lab does. So Mm -hmm. understanding the technology of the ELISA is going to be relying on some amount of immune system. So too is the serum antibody. So if the person is really immune deficient or displaying immune deficiency symptoms, they're sick all the time. When they get sick, they can't fight it. When they get a, a cut, it becomes kind of infected or it takes a long time to heal. Then I'm running a serum antibody to make sure that they can even show me that they're having a problem with it. So a serum IgG and E total before we run the MyMyco lab or before I do an ELISA urine mycotoxin test, because that those are both relying on the immune system. Mm-hmm. If it is something where you have a patient with some kidney disease, I avoid the ELISA because that does not control for creatinine. Mm-hmm. So you might get those great sweeps of, I ate protein and so I can't clear I didn't eat protein and I am clearing. And then you don't really know if this up and down is really helping you. Mm-hmm. And then the mass spec method tends to be more changeable if someone has to be on glutathione or on binders. Mm-hmm. So if they absolutely have to be on glutathione because of either a TBI or they're some kind of program, then I avoid those tests and try to use one of the other two because that is so manipulatable based on those based on the split sample testing. And I have twin boys. I have identical twin boys. So it was, and when our house became moldy, I, you know, we doctors, we are weird. Yeah. I was like, oh no, it's mold. And then I thought, oh, I could do some testing. <laughs> Silver lining, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I tested everything. I tested us all the time just to see. And, and the two of them had different protocols. One was good about doing it. And one not so one was sicker one wasn't but the same exposure and i found that some mycotoxins went up but most of them went down when you use glutathione Mm -hmm. so yeah so those are kind of if anybody is a practitioner i have a spreadsheet that i have of you know which one and and i have that free to my membership too if you're in the membership and i'm updating it based on all the stuff that i learn as we go Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm yeah. so glad you have an analytical brain that thought of all of this, right? And then a real life experiment, right? You know, so. Right. 
I know. That was perfect. You know, so, well, why don't maybe as we kind of are on the mycotoxin topic, so obviously they're creating a ton of symptoms. They're very, you know, prevalent, especially when people have had, you know, mold exposure. Um, this is something that we want to really measure and get the body burden down so then the symptoms alleviate and people get their life back. And so what are maybe a few like top go-to strategies to think about for mycotoxin elimination? Yeah. So the, the main thing, the oil change idea is you have to get good fats in there. So I use a lot of high quality essential fatty acids that could be, you know, fish oil. DHA has the most, most research, Mm -hmm. but GLA has a little bit also. Mm -hmm. Um, And then phosphatidylcholine. Mm -hmm. The idea there is that we are trying to, the oil change happens at the level of the bile. And so if you're not moving bile and if you're not giving the ingredients for bile movement, you're not grabbing onto the mycotoxins. All of them, except ochratoxin doesn't use glutathione and bile all that much. It uses the kidneys, which is a bioflavonoid thing. But so we use, I use very high dose good fats and very high dose bioflavonoids because most people have an ochratoxin burden of some kind. And it helps to dislodge that from the albumin. Mm-hmm. So that's, those are the first two and then making sure they're pooping. <laughs> so, and then bitters, 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 because that bitter taste receptor, there are actually over half the pharmaceuticals are targeting that taste receptor through their drugs. So mm-hmm. amazing. And yeah. we can do it with just good old squirt of bitters yeah. and people that are, you know, kind of a little wary of herbal medicine. I'm like, just go get the Angostura bitters from the liquor store. And they're like, really? That would work? Yeah. <laughs> a little bubble water. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> a little lime and a little bitters. And you've just created for yourself something that's going to facilitate the oil change. So having bitter on the tongue induces the bile to be made in the liver and then to be released. And it's the bile that's grabbing those mycotoxins because bile cleans up oil-soluble toxins. Mm-hmm. And then you need to grab the bile so we don't recycle it. A lot of opinions and, you know, kind of religiosity about binders and which one for which mycotoxin. And, and you know, Dr. Nathan's done amazing research on this. It's in his book, Toxic. For me as a naturopathic doctor trained by Dr. Kernian, insoluble fiber works really, really well to grab bile. So, and we know this because doctors, regular MDs use it to lower cholesterol. Well, where is cholesterol? It's in the bile. Mm -hmm. So I went to, just to confirm for myself to understand, is this actually working what I'm doing? You know, because it's good to kind of look at that, you know, with a critical eye, like, I don't know, that's what I was taught, but does it really work? So I went to studies where people were missing their gallbladder. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to find out what will sop up bile the best because these people tend to have bile dump diarrhea, which is really inconvenient. You can't get to work in the morning. And what they found is insoluble fiber, also steamed kale and collard greens and mustard greens uh-huh. were about 35 to 45%, depending on what you're using, as effective as cholestyramine mm-hmm. and it's contributing nutrients. Love it. Yeah. So I'm like, I would rather feed my microbiome and keep my patient pooping because cholestyramine as a binder, very effective. But if, you know, if that, that's a magnet bind, not a Velcro bind. So if you're constipated, that can just kind of come right off that bind. And now you're binding nutrients, right? Binding critical things that you need. So yeah, I use binders then to grab that bile, but I do it through food and it's yummy, you know, 
What it, yeah, no, that, that's great. It's such a great girl. And yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Cholestyramine can serve a purpose. It, it's there, but I, I do see all the other, you know, side effects from that as well. And with insoluble fiber, I mean, or do you have any go-tos that you like or that you feel like your patients tolerate? Because right on the flip side, this patient population can be really sensitive too, right? Because of their you know, mast cells or just their hyper vigilance in their immune system. So do you have any like tried and true insoluble fibers that people should try out there? So typically, again, our population, they have motility issues. They may have SIBO. SIBO is a really common sequela from mold exposure. So I try to start with the SIBO-friendly ones, according to Dr. Nerala Jacoby's biphasic diet. I use ones that fit in that first phase, which is the most restrictive. So Mm -hmm. that's grinding up seeds. And we try to go for two tablespoons of ground seeds of sunflower, pumpkin, and sesame. Sesame, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they can just make a mix of whatever they like, grind it, and then try to get two tablespoons of it over their meal throughout the day. And then you're getting a little bit of binder all day long, which is how we metabolize the mycotoxins. Mm -hmm. If you have a gallbladder, every time you eat, you will get this squish of bile to help you metabolize your fats. So what I have them do is do it with meals and then put a little fat, a little extra olive oil, a little extra butter organic butter um, so that we're getting that induction of the bile and we're picking it up with the fibers that are not only picking up mycotoxin laden bile, but also feeding their microbiome and giving them a protein source. So many people are low in protein. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's too easy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. There's with the binder conversation. I mean, Cellcore has helped change the conversation about with or without food, but there can be this whole stress about when to time and when to take them. And, you know, so there's like, you know, all this binder stress and, you know, in people's lives who are going through this. So this is just, yeah, this is so much easier. You know, yeah. so make your mocktail with your bitters and then make it yeah. good, you know, salad with some seeds on top. And with the, um, you know, seeds also too, I mean, you get all the, you know, essential fatty acids and, um, you know, omegas, right? rather. And, you know, so that, that has, you know, that property as well. So the oil change in the fiber, right? So yeah. yeah. And it's just, it, I, let it be simple. Yeah. That's what I'm running up against is that can't be, that can't be good or that can't be enough. That can't be enough. And in some cases it isn't when we are about to start an antifungal, I'll use something like Takasumi, which is carbonized bamboo mm-hmm. or charcoal or something that has a little more, mm-hmm. But I really worry about people using these long-term. If you look in the animal research, they would never use clay all all long-term because it does deplete the nutrients. They have cows who can't calve. They have animals that can't, like chickens and turkeys that won't gain weight if they're on clay too long. So I'm really cautious about long-term use of those things. But I know that there are times that we know we're going to poke the bear that's a good time to use a little extra. And in that case, I use those away from food because we're trying to mop up, not just mycotoxins. We're trying to mop up all the endotoxin that just got spilled and, you know, lots of different yeah. crud. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? That whole sludge, you know, right? Yes. And you mentioned, you just mentioned endotoxin, right? And so you also talked about, you know, um, in the in the beginning of our conversation about, you know, mycotoxins from mold, but there's also this endotoxin exposure in water damage buildings that you know, people don't always think about. Can you, you know, share, you know, your knowledge on that? Yeah, I can share a story from my own house. Actually, when we had mold in my house, I was the perfect person for that to happen to. I'm realizing because it induced me to write the book. And, and um, I tell the story in the book that the remediators all knew me, the inspector knows me, you know, so when it happened in my house, I was like, Oh, this is mold. Oh, call up all my people, you know, and get going on treatment. And they knew that 
okay, this is my house now. I'm going to go ahead and test everything. I want to test everything. I want to write stories. I want to take pictures. I want to know the process, what worked, what didn't work. Um, and they brought up this board. They were like, oh, you're going to want to test this one. And it was super vegetative. And of course they were like, you know, put all your gear on. So yeah, but take care of yourself, everybody. Yes. They browse this board that we, um, I actually sent a picture of it to the inspector. She was like, totally mold. And I was like, yeah, let's guess which one, you know, like we tried to make yeah, fun. And the remediator said, yeah, that's totally going to be moldy. So we tested it. And at the time I was trying out three different ways of testing to see which was the most effective. So I did a tape lift, I did a swab and I did a bulk sample. So really thorough. Right. All three samples came back negative for mold. Oh. And I was like, what? There's no way. And I told the remediators, look at this result. This is no way that this is no mold. Called the inspector I work with, Martine, and she said, let's test it for endotoxins. And it was like 300,000 times higher of endotoxin than safe for human health. Or, you know, it was like wow. ridiculously gross. And it looked like mold. So here, this vegetative state was basically a bacterial petri dish. Wow. So that was full of the bacteria because it was a gray water spill. So it's going to host more bacteria rather than mold. There were plenty of mold in the environment too, but the bacteria got a leg leg up on this area because it was a gray water spill. So bacteria came in with the water and it seeded the problem. That's an endotoxin problem. Actinomycetes actually, they don't really, they don't make classic endotoxin like LPS. What they have is a metabolite Mm -hmm. and this metabolite make, it's a antimicrobial. Mm -hmm. So they actually use some of our very favorite drugs, ivermectin, actinomycetes. So, you know, I mean, it's a very effective soy bacteria to make things that it will compete, you know, out these other critters. So Mm -hmm. if you have actinomycetes, you can have endotoxin, actinomycetes, mold spores, mycotoxins in one environment. And that's more the rule than the exception. Mm -hmm. And you can see, first of all, okay, why people are so sick, right? With all of these exposures and then how things get missed, right? Because not all tests are going to be looking at all these. So can you just like, what test did you use to discover the endotoxin in your um, environment? Because I think that's, that's a big piece, a missing piece of the puzzle that we just are hyper-focused on mold. And we, we, this is where people are in this gray zone and not able to move forward because they don't have the information. Right. Yeah. In that case, I mean, I'm pretty clear about knowing my lane. I did all that testing just to like understand, be able to talk. So I let my inspector choose that. So I would highly recommend that people work with a building inspector. In that case, I think she sent it off to Hayes Microbial. That's who I use a lot for bulk testing. Just in my, you know, I mean, I'm testing. You'd be... (laughs) Yeah, doctors are weird. <laughs> I'm testing. Like you have a, you need your own lab. Jen. I do. I, I'm right. Like, <laughs> Anyone who's listening out there who wants to yeah. get to a lab, it would go to you could use, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, every time I change a filter, like I changed out my water filter in my refrigerator and I found ketomium, which is, causes dementia. Oh. I was like, Oh no, we're not doing this anymore. So I disconnected the line, did a video blog about it, you know, taught about it. So I'm like, this one crosses the blood brain barrier and is connected to dementia. And I'm drinking ice water and getting dementia. That's ridiculous. So then I was like, well, maybe it was just mine. So ran to my parents and they had had theirs. (laughs) Don't you love it? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) 
And I'm like, can I test your, your uh, fridge filter? And they're like, we only have it, have it in for like three weeks. We don't need to change it. I said, I'll cover it. I'll get you a new one. Let me test it. That one had ketomium. And on the YouTube video that I taught about, you know, drink ice water, get dementia is the title of it. <laughs> there was a water quality guy that wrote in, in the comments. He said, yeah, we're having a lot of trouble with that one in our, in our water filtration. Yeah. 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 Wow. So I'm testing all the time. So yeah, that's uh, yeah. but it's through my inspector. So yes, absolutely. Use an inspector. It's so worth the money. People say, well, I can't afford it. And I'm like, you can't afford not to. They've yeah. got insurance coverage. They've gotten people out of leases. They've yeah. been the, they've found the remediators that know what they're doing. They have the bulldog over the top of that remediation project. Mm-hmm. Your inspector and your remediator should never be the same person. Mm-hmm. So it should be two totally different people. And I've had inspectors save people remediation money. I learned that because I tried to have them just use the remediation company. And, and I was like, no, I think, I think we need a bulldog on this. We need oversight and we need accountability mm-hmm. and they will do that for your patients. So if anyone's listening, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great chapter. yeah. So building inspector people should Google when they're wanting to figure out how to navigate, you know, all these different things that we're sharing is not, I mean, they can do, of course, we can talk about, you know, screening tests and, you know, other things to kind of get the ball rolling lane, but when they're going to be making decisions, looking mm-hmm. at a building inspector, no, that's a, that's a really great pearl for sure. Yeah. A mold inspector or a bit, I prefer a, a building biology, the BBEC, yeah. Yeah. because they don't just have mold goggles on. Yeah. yeah, in places where I have a questionnaire that I created for myself in clinic when I was seeing Lyme patients and I'm like, well, which one of these guys has mold so we can get to it faster? You know, we need to create something. When I talked to Dr. Harowitz about it, he's like, good luck. It's going to be my questionnaire. It's going to be the same. And I, so I was like, that's a challenge. No, I, <laughs> so, I took his as the inspiration and then created one and then just worked with the numbers of it and patients where I knew there was mold. So if anybody wants that questionnaire, it's on my website, you can get it. It's a clinical questionnaire. And what's really nice is when we fill it out, you get a score and it gives you an idea of no, probably not mold possibly mold or probable mold. He notes mentally too. I'm going to download that after this and make sure, you know, we're using oh, that email it to you. <laughs> no, 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 but, um, but we were talking about, you know, building biologists. Patients where I, they had probable mold on the questionnaire and I'm, you know, calling the inspector and they find no mold, but they find mothballs. Mm-hmm. They find no mold, but they found carbon monoxide poisoning. They found no mold, but they found a gas leak on their, their gas stove in a small apartment. So it's not always mold. And we have to remember that, you know, and it's great to have somebody who's really thinking about things like EMFs and, you know, all, all of the things that it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Not that we need to find more problems, but the idea is to narrow the remediation or the fix to the thing that it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Getting solutions focused. I know it's amazing how resilient, you know, the human is given all that we're up against, right? You know, so, um, but no, I, I think that's a really good, great tip. And, you know, Jill, you mentioned already, um, and I want to um, definitely highlight this part of your approach in your treatment is that using antifungals is also part of your treatment st- strategy. So can you share just like your approach to using antifungals? Because I do feel that sometimes gets missed. You know, we talked about mycotoxins, eliminating those, but, you know, this is different for people who are listening. Um, mycotoxins, uh, our treatment is different than antifungal treatment strategies. So can you just educate us on that? 
Yeah, you bet. So the way I see it is that mold is like the factory and mycotoxins are like the smoke. So if we, from my experience anyway, if we're finding mycotoxins in a urine test or on the serum antibody test and your body's mad about it, you are colonized. There's something that has changed in your flora of the sinuses, the gut that is now acting competitively. And it, for me, this was a study that was done by Dr. Joseph Brewer. I was treating with antifungals, but I wasn't treating the sinuses as a regular order of business. And it took people so much longer for those mycotoxins to come down. And then after his study where they found that if we were to test healthy people and sick people from moldy buildings, the healthy people and the sick people, we'd, we'd all have fungus in our sinuses. Mm. We'd all have bacteria in our sinuses. So the, pre- the mere presence of that is not the important part. The important part was the healthy people, those molds and fungi were not making mycotoxins. Mm. They didn't find it in the sinus swab. They didn't find it in the lung aspirate. They found it in the water damage building people. So to me, I was like, oh my goodness, this is a sinus. This is a top-down problem. Mm-hmm. I'm busy treating the body with systemic antifungals, which is treating the gut and you know that kind of thing. But here is this sinus colonization that's seeding the gut every time you swallow, every time you have postnasal drip, there it goes. And so when I started adding the sinus antifungals, people got better so much faster. Mm-hmm. And they were also more resilient to the next mold exposure that they have. Mm -hmm. So I treat with antifungals that are, I start with plants and Mm -hmm. I understand kind of like the shoemaker camp and things that are saying treating with antifungals will lead to resistance. That's their argument. And I a hundred percent agree with them if that's your only tool. So -hmm. if that's your only tool, you have to wait till someone has a frank fungal infection to warrant the use of this antifungal. And if you're treating with fungus, you have to treat a long time. It's like with Lyme, you know, it's a very tenacious beast, Mm -hmm. but if we start with the plants, then we can sneak up on it a little bit better. And these plants have multi-mechanisms of action. And the plants are actually shown to reduce fungal resistance. Things like garlic, powder arco, holy basil. So those are things that we can use. And if they're not enough, we can add the pharmaceutical, but not ditch the herb because the herb is going to help the pharmaceutical work so much better. We can use a lower dose over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do antifungals top and bottom. So sinus and gut and then mm-hmm. yeah, start with plants. ideally. Yeah. Do you have a prepared nasal rinse or do you have people kind of make their own with the different plant dilutions? How does it look as far as like a treatment? Yeah, it's all over the board because it's all different. And your age matters too. Like for kids, we wouldn't put things directly in the nose. We might start with probiotics. It's amazing how swabbing a kid's nares with probiotics corrects it because they're healthy enough. You know, they don't have all the complications, <laughs> dry dehydration and all the things that older people do, or even just those little old buzz inhalation sticks. I mean, that's essential oil treatment a snort up each nostril and it clears your sinuses and kids love them. They're very trendy right now too with teenagers. So you can be like, oh, you have to do this inhalation stick. They're like, well, okay, if I have to. (laughs) But I will, I have all kinds of like pre-made blends. I do have a handout on that, just nasal options for mold that just goes through like all of the things. So there's probiotics that have been well-studied using lactobacillus sacchii. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's pre-made blends. I have a DIY make your own essential oil blend um, for the, the DIY people. Yeah. Um, there's blends that are pre-made that have like ozonated oils. Mm-hmm. So you can get that little bit of ozone effect in there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the way to, again, if those aren't working enough, we try biofilm busters alongside. So EDTA, if we need to, or X clear, and then we might have to use pharmaceuticals, but you know, mm-hmm. so often people, I get this question a lot of like, well, how, how often can you, do you see get, people get better using just herbs? I'm like, Mm, uh, most of the time actually like, <laughs> the one-off yeah exactly yeah I love that I um came across the lactobacillus sockeye or sockeye you know maybe a year or two ago and I got to interview one of the lanto sinus people and that, that oh, wow. yeah that was really fun because it was just um you know I think there's a whole you know, just so much more opportunity, as you mentioned, to look at the, you know, probiotic, you know, use in the sinuses because, you know, I'm going to let the bugs fight it out themselves, right? You know, um, right. That's, that's a big, yeah, that was a, a fun find. So I'm so glad you're using that as well. And I'm going to check out that handout as well and just make yeah. sure I do a lot of muscle testing. So I'm going to make sure my sinus section is, you know, equipped with all, all, all of the tools, nice. because, you know, in um, biological medicine or bioregulatory medicine, we look at interference fields. Um, we call it, so these areas of the body or these focal infections that can be really draining energy or blocking the body's ability to self-regulate and heal. And the sinuses are so big, you know, um, this can be such a, what we call interference field for the gut, the brain, you know, vitality. So I, I think it's a really important part of your treatment, as you mentioned. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a big, I think that came out in 2014. Yeah. I was just like, what? I have been missing this whole chunk. And it's been years and years now watching, you know, and almost wanting to call my patients from before I read the study to say, I'm so sorry. It took so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're making up for it with all the people you're educating. So, and I'm sure <laughs> they understand. I mean, it's, it's so crazy, right? These illnesses are ahead of their time, you know, a lot of the time. Yeah. So there's so much that we just do on the front line and we keep going. And then we look in retrospect, you know, and like, oh my gosh, like, and it's amazing. We got all these people better with the knowledge we had then. And now we know more, right. you know, our treatments just get more elegant or more succinct. So I, I love that. So Dr. Joe, before we came on, you know, like obviously you're a brilliant doctor and you have so much, you know, to share, you know, really with our physical bodies and, you know, really supporting, you know, recovering from mold related illnesses, you know, and, you know, Lyme and mold and all of it you know, really the modern day chronic illness, right? Um, but you have this whole other lens that you look at health, you know, um, that we're more than our physical bodies and maybe just some insights on, you know, how you work with that aspect of health and maybe for people who are listening, who are stuck out there or struggling, opening their mind to this whole other aspect to look at. Yeah, this is my passion. <laughs> this is the thing I do that I didn't talk about for a long time. So yeah, I'm, I'm coming out of closet. <laughs> well, come out, right? You know. <laughs> well, and it was funny how angels work. That the last phrase in my book says, "Stay in the light." The best way to conquer mold is to stay in the light. And I was thinking, you know, my I was like, oh, may, maybe people will think of it as sunshine. But what I was really trying to say is truly charge your light body. We are light beings. We, that frequency is so powerful. And I get this question a lot and you probably see a lot too. People move out of their moldy home into a moldy apartment. They leave the moldy job to another moldy job. It's almost like mold starts to hijack and rewire your system, your physical body for its benefit. You know, I say mold moves in. So don't become it's compost material. Yeah. Right, right, right. The way to do that is to to charge your inner light. 
if you are a mold attractor, there's something much deeper on a deeper frequency to address. Mm-hmm. And you can do it yourself. You don't have to have some magical healing person, mm-hmm. guru or anything like that's a lot with, with treatment too. Like trust yourself, trust your body. It, it takes a level of honesty, but also trusting, you know, and going with it. And and this, it's nice to have somebody that can facilitate and help you with it. So people that do energy work, people that do Reiki, people that have fun machines like you have, because mm-hmm. all of those things really help to move this on a frequency level. Charging your inner light makes you a mold repeller. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't mm-hmm. that be wonderful? You know, just to be like, you know, I'm, you can say in your head, I'm not doing this anymore. But if you don't do something on a regular basis, as regularly as you brush your teeth, mm-hmm. you need to brush your energy. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I do that when I'm brushing my teeth. Then when I'm done, I kind of do this thing with my hands where I'm like, shoo, 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 shoo. I go kind of up and down my body. Don't forget your back because there's lots of stuff attached there and back of your head, top of your head, bottom of your feet, and just brush your energy with whatever it is that calls you. If it's a feather, if it's a that might be another toothbrush. You know, I mean, you never know. Like it, it can be silly. It doesn't have to be serious. But your intention during that time is that I am brushing the plaque off my energy, just like I just brushed the plaque off my teeth. And a daily practice like that, morning and night. And the second thing you do is you charge. So whatever it is that charges your energy, it might just be a moment of visualization of the sunshine beaming into your heart. It might be thinking of yourself as a lightning bolt that you're going to stretch all the way up to the stars. And when you touch the stars, you get, you know, and it like charges you. It might be that every time you plug in your phone to charge it, you think I'm also plugging in my energy. And when my phone is charged, I'm charged. So whatever like mental game that you have. And I, I heard your interview on, on energy codes. Like, you sue mortar. Um, yes. And I love how she says you squeeze, like you squeeze that and you funnel out that place inside of you that make room for it and charge it. This idea that you're a bright beaming light and that's dispersal and that's welcoming for that mold to come in. What we're talking about is bring it in and charge it, like compress it so that you then it's just like the sun. Mm. nothing can get close to that sun Mm. right it's going to get burned mold can't come close to you if you have compressed that energy into something as strong as the sun Mm. i love that that because it's it can feel like a very disempowering almost like bad luck kind of time right when you're just chasing mold and kind of affected by mold and you know i know you and i both have a tremendous amount of compassion for our patients who go through this and you know i think when we turn you know when we experience what you're sharing and learn about this aspect of ourselves when you you were talking i am you know also very into you know energetic principles and these you know principles of you know how we're wired and we're connected and you know there's this idea of resonance right and so you know, we want to be in resonance, you know, with a, a frequency that's going to be a mold repellent, not a mold attractor. And I think sometimes when people hear us, they can be like, oh, don't blame the victim or this or that, which I, I understand, you know, but this is like a whole other like, okay, you've had this experience for whatever reason. Now let's turn it around and really make you part of the equation to create a new life, to create a new experience and not feel that you're um, a victim of your circumstances. I think it, it, I think it's a, it's, it's a big part of the healing 
work that we both embrace. And um, I, I, I try to do that in my own life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to teach my daughter, you know, just, uh, just, this is, this is how, this is, you know, the truth of who we are, you know, that we, we often forget or, you know, think it's just a, a side note or kind of an afterthought rather than like the, the part of the, the work. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I love that. And I, I'm so glad you said about blaming the victim because mold happens to you. Yeah. The first time. Yep. The second time (laughs) maybe that by moving in, it has created a coherence with itself. Cause if you are a mold poster, you have that resonance. And so I think that that's really important. It, when it happens to you the first time you are the victim of that circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to do is to give you an understanding of then the sequela of that, the thing that happens after that by being colonized, you are now on its frequency. You've just dialed into its radio station. Mm-hmm. So it can find you and it will drive you to stay in that frequency. So you have to do something on the frequency level. You've got to tune that dial to some, to a different frequency, mm-hmm. ideally one that's higher vibe. <laughs> yeah. To the higher frequency, right? Yeah. No, I totally, I know. And I, I feel like, um, you know, in this world, right. that, you know, these microbes, the mold, all of this has its own consciousness, right. It has its own, I mean, it's all alive. Right. And, you know, when we think of the body in this way, I mean, there's, I think a dance that we play or kind of dance that we, you know, facilitate with our patients is this, you know, the consciousness of the thing that's driving your health down and we're talking to that or is it your true essence your nature who you are you know and I, I I try to create awareness around that with some of my patients this is not you it's it's that you know and so I think that can be sometimes healing because some of these things also make you very mentally unclear unstable you know you can have a labeled psychiatric condition going through these things okay. and so knowing that this is another consciousness um, within you that's not your true essence. And I, I think that can be comforting for people to hear that. Um, and, but I, I don't know if you have that same experience. Yeah, definitely. I, I hear so often afterward, well afterward, yes. that patients will say when I um, describe to them that it is, it's here to recycle or compost something that isn't necessary or needed anymore, that you're probably not ready to let go, which might be a physical thing, but it's often emotion. Mm-hmm. And that they'll say, you know, you mentioned that thing to me about how mold is helping me to compost something and get rid of something that I wasn't really, you were so right. Cause now that I'm on the other side of it, I can see that I not welcomed it in, but that it was something that was coming almost as an assistance. I do a lot of vilifying mold just so people can understand how it's yeah. dangerous, yeah. but it also we're completely confusing the mold. You know, we're building houses that it can misbehave in, but also it comes to help us compost and not just physical stuff. Like you said, the consciousness of mold is to help us break down things that aren't useful anymore into little nutritive pieces that we can then use for our own vibration again. Mm -hmm. And that's, if you've got that stuck spot of an emotion or a trauma that you're just not ready to deal with or not in a presence or a place that says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So mold in the end can be the gift, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It can be. Even that distance away from it, right? Yes. <laughs> when you're in it, it doesn't feel like that at all. No way. Uh-uh. No. And I have so much compassion for people because uh-huh. I, when it happened in my own house, I even knew what to do. I had my posse and yeah. it was completely overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Even with all of that. So that's, you know, that's why I wrote my book. I was like, well, this is this is too much. (laughs) People need to know this. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about your book. So tell us the title where people can find it. Yeah, it's called Break the Mold. They can get it at anywhere. Um, Big big box stores, indie.com, I think is what it's called, indiebooks.com. If you don't like to support Amazon, Um, (laughs) also on Amazon and off my website. And it's in digital if you're in other places in the world. It's been translated into into Polish, into Greek, German is coming, and Chinese. So oh, if you wow. are speaking any of those languages, <laughs> you can go that way. Congratulations. That's incredible. Thank That's you. awesome. Molds um, everywhere. Yeah, totally. Totally. Doesn't know a border. Yeah. So, um, and then Dr. Jill, you mentioned some incredible ways to connect with you. Um, so please share your membership, your site, and then some um, you know courses that you've created. I want everyone to learn as much as possible from you. Yeah, you bet. So one of the most handy things probably is a course I have called nine things to know when you're still in mold. Mm. I didn't use the word stuck in mold for a reason. Mm. So if you're still in mold and you, it will be a while before you can get out of that, either your job or you're in a lease or something like that. There are things that you can do to make sure that you're leaving that environment healthier than you would have if you didn't do these things. There are also things you shouldn't be doing when you're still in mold because you can start to poke the bear and mold gets mean when it knows you're coming after it. So that's a little, um, it's an hour long course. You get a handout. I go over dosages and stuff like that in the course. So that's available to people in that situation. That was heavily requested by people on the membership. And so I was like, ah, okay, I'll just make a course. And then everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and then I have a membership for people who, if they have a doctor, who, if they can't find a doctor, I do request everybody has a primary care doctor. That's guiding their care, ideally a mole literate doctor, um, ideally one of them that's taken my training so that we're on the same wavelength. Um, but if they just want a little more support, I'm there on the forum. It kind of feels like Facebook, but it's private. So you don't have to worry about, I know some people are saying they don't want their, their family to know they're this sick or their, you know, work people. So being out on Facebook was really anxiety provoking. So we have a private membership. There's a ton of information there handouts, text sheets, each mycotoxin, what can it do? What can you do about it? Um, that kind of stuff is in there. And most importantly, you get the support of other people that are going through the same thing. Mm-hmm. So if you are the canary in your family, there's a ton of people who totally get it mm-hmm. and they're there. And then I kind of monitor it. And, and so that you make sure that that's the problem with Facebook pages is it can get off into fear really quickly. Yeah. And so I can contribute things like the success stories that I see and the things that I'm using that are successful. Mm-hmm. And then if you have a doc who you love, you would love them to be mold literate. They can take my practitioner training course. And if they're a medical doctor or nurse practitioner, they get CME through the AMA. If they're a nurse, if naturopathic doctor, they can get the naturopathic CME. 
Great work. No, that's awesome. That you're, yeah, you know, it takes a team, right? No, so I'm, I'm so grateful that you're training other, you know, physicians and practitioners. You know, that's that's how we're gonna really, you know, create a wave. So thank you for all that you're doing. It's just so lovely to connect with you, and I'm just so impressed with your knowledge and your expertise and your passion. And I really um, am so grateful that you're on the podcast sharing this information. And as we wrap up, Dr. Jill, is there anything left on your heart that you want to share with the audience today? I love your question. I love that question. Every time I listen to your podcast, I'm like, it's so beautiful. (laughs) I guess just trust yourself. You know, I mean, there's so many cases where people have the inkling, this might be mold and they get talked out of it either by their doctor, their family, their boss, their landlord. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, these other people lived here and we're fine, you know, but Mm -hmm. trust yourself, trust that intuition, trust that little, it's might be mold. And I know it's inconvenient for it to be mold, but there's a ton working with Dr. Schaffner, you know, there's a ton of resources out there for you. So Mm -hmm. trust yourself and go with the trust. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much. We'll have all the information and connections to the coursework and Dr. Jill's website alongside this podcast. And thank you for your incredible work. Thank you. Likewise. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation to the brilliant Dr. Jill Krista. If you want to learn more about her courses and her membership, please check out the links alongside the show notes. And if you've been enjoying these podcasts, I'd be so grateful for a review on iTunes or wherever you are listening to this podcast from. I hope that you have a beautiful day.